since 9-11 and from the beginning, we believed in peaceful settlement. We received a request at that time to host an intra-Afghan talks. And we recommended that we would do so if we can include all the parties to the conflict. But that proposal was not acceptable. Nobody listened to us. 20 years later, Taliban back to power. I would say had they listened to us, we would have saved more lives. Welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper, and I'm coming to you from the Oslo Forum. Having started out as a small gathering in 2003, the Forum is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Participants from around the world have come to discuss how to resolve the major conflicts of our day. Yemen, Sudan, Afghanistan, the war in Ukraine. Our theme today is the mediator's role in negotiations between a superpower and a non-state armed group. My guest played a critical role in the Doha agreement between the US and the Taliban, which led to the US-NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan. And he was an important player in evacuating people as the Taliban closed in on Kabul. Mutlaq al-Qahtani, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. I'd like to give our listeners a sense of who you are, your values and motivations. And I'd like to take you back to 9-11, 2001, the attack on the Twin Towers. It was a hugely significant moment for Afghanistan in that it led to the US-UK invasion and the overthrow of the Taliban. Can you remember where you were and what went through your head when you first saw the pictures on the television of that attack? I was doing my PhD in international law in, in the UK. And I was also traveling quite frequently to New York to attend, at that time, the UN General Assembly. So uh, I remember the Twin Towers very well. And I remember what happened, which is quite devastating uh, moment and event. But what happened, happened. And maybe we can talk about the aftermath, after 9-11. Of course, the US decided to uh, engage in a military operation in Afghanistan. And I'm not in a position to discuss the legality or illegality of such a military campaign. Since 9-11, and from the beginning, and maybe this is the first time that I say this, that we believed in peaceful settlement. Maybe it was not wise, or maybe not politically correct, to recommend peace talks with whom we disagree. It's not a secret that we received a request at that time to host an intra-Afghan talks. And we recommended at that time that we would do so if we can include all the parties to the conflict. The request was by the UN itself, but that proposal was not acceptable because what we meant by that, we said all the parties to the conflict. And we were asked, if we were referring to Taliban or not. And the answer was, as long as they are party to the conflict, they should should be invited. But nobody listened to us. A month later, a big tent was built in Bonn, Germany. And within 11 days, a solution probably was imposed. 20 years later, Taliban back to power. I would say, had they listened to us 22 years ago, we would have saved more lives and 
more resources, I would say. But this is what happened, happened, and maybe the lesson learned from that incident that there is no military solution to conflicts. And the only solution is through engagement, through talks. I want to reflect more on the, the lessons learned and the missed opportunity that you refer to. But let me ask you to talk about when you took up your post as Special Envoy of the Foreign Minister of Qatar for Counterterrorism and the Mediation of Conflict Resolution in 2017. How did you get picked for this role? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was quite uh, fascinated by the reasoning behind Special Envoy and Counterterrorism and mediation at the same time. And the reason is... When you see the UN Global Strategy on Counterterrorism, it's composed of four pillars. And one of the pillars, number one, is the root causes of terrorism. And number one root cause of terrorism is conflict. So I think addressing the root causes through mediation, conflict resolutions, and utilizing our good offices is maybe one of the things that Qatar is trying to help and contribute to the fight against terrorism. It's not an easy job. Well, let's talk about how you went about pursuing your mission in Afghanistan specifically. Talk me through your first meetings with the parties themselves, the Americans and Taliban and others. I was educated in the West. I work with the Westerns. I have many Western friends. And I am a Muslim. I'm a Sunni. Our culture is more or less similar to the Afghan cultures. So maybe I thought... Maybe I'm the best mediator to mediate between the Americans and Taliban. But I was wrong. Whatever I studied and which kind of culture maybe we have or similarities is not helpful. What I learned from this is quite unique experience to mediate a conflict like this by two, a superpower with non-state actors, which was and is still considered as a terrorist organizations and those who were negotiating were designated by the Security Council as terrorists. Whether we agree or disagree with this or whether this reflect, the sanctions reflect the reality on the ground, that's something we can discuss later on. But it was a quite unique experience. But what I learned, and I want to share this with your audience, that there is no fixed rules. And a good mediator should be flexible, adaptable, and resilient. I think you cannot send somebody to Afghanistan for a month or two months and he claims that he has expertise or knowledge and can be a good mediator. No, it's a way of life, it's a way of thinking. There's a lot of elements into this. So you learn by practice and every day you've got to adapt and be flexible with the parties. The major lesson I would like to share with my friends, colleagues, uh, young diplomats is flexibility and resilience. And more importantly, you need to be mindful of the cultural sensitivity of others. This is a very serious element in talks. And unfortunately, many mediators ignore the importance of cultural sensitivity into talks. It sounds like you're encouraging real humility on part of the mediator. I'd like to ask you about how you try to put that into practice, say in your first interactions with the Taliban, because even though Qatar had had a long-standing involvement and, and historical engagement, uh, for you personally, you had just been appointed to that role in 2017. So talk me through those early meetings and how you went about building trust. The first few meetings, actually, you feel disappointed. 
<laughs> because you reach this conclusion there's there is no way on earth these two parties will come to a conclusion one day because the gap is a quite as massive mistrust between the two sides but we understand that both sides have interest to reach a settlement but also more importantly that you should understand that each side has a legitimate concern and certain grievances that you need to address we encourage both sides to see it from the perspective of the other side it was as i said it's extremely unique experience taliban very difficult negotiator but weird things happened and what i can share is sometimes when you ask the us side if this proposal is acceptable to you they will say yes and yes means yes and when you ask the taliban the same question that this proposal is acceptable to you they will say yes but yes does not mean yes they need to get another yes so things like this there is no way that you study or learn this this huge gap that you refer to between dealing with a superpower on the one hand and a non-state armed group on the other different understandings about agreeing to text tell me about the different approaches that you had to use as a mediator with those two sides well it is like uh, engaging with them separately having uh, subgroups trying to tackle issues by issues because Taliban has a different style than the Americans if you have three items or four items if you finish the first one if there's no consensus in number 2 we should move to number 3 Taliban no you got to finish number 2 before we go to 3 they feel this sequence is important is relevant but we should respect their wish i think what's important is that both sides understand <coughs> the following Qatar has no hidden agenda in the talks. We kept equal distance from each side. Whatever we say or do or act, it's in accordance with international law. So you gain the trust of the parties, which I think is extremely important. So we never favor the US to Taliban nor Taliban to the US, although the United States is our strategic partner, but we do care about our integrity, we care about our credibility. and impartiality and independence and that what makes Qatar genuine peace broker and when you're carrying out your mission give me a sense of what led to the Doha agreement and the kind of behind the scenes work such that you can share them because you can see something assigned in February 2020 but there's the culmination of, of months if not years of work so what are the moments in that process that really stick out in your mind when we started the talks and start drafting the first elements of Doha agreement in late January 2019 we felt things might move forward but maybe more slowly but both sides were asking for something which we think is important and we also advocate for this which is a confidence building measures ceasefire during raids swaps prisoners or hostages some building measures from each side and that was quite helpful and we felt the flexibility that both sides are showing with both sides seriousness in the talks is evidence or testimony for hopefully a conclusion of the talks of course we have some difficulties but surprisingly the difficulties not by the parties themselves it was external elements some spoilers which basically some states are spoiling this effort and we kept saying we should be united over Afghanistan not competing over Afghanistan and proliferations and the fragmentations of efforts is not helpful if you want to help 
you should come and complement our role and we should streamline and consolidate our efforts. Otherwise, this peace talks will fail. And I think the United States play a positive role also to stop some spoilers. As the deadline looms for the American departure, things start to shift dramatically on the ground as the Taliban take over the country, move towards Kabul. What was your message to the Taliban during that period? We just deliver one message. Taking Kabul by force is not acceptable. And believe it or not, uh, they gave their commitment not to enter Kabul by force. The way we saw it, we completed the talks, we signed an agreement between Taliban and the US. Then the next phase was uh, intra-Afghan negotiations, negotiations between the Afghan and Taliban. And by the way, was not between the government of Afghanistan and Taliban, because Taliban did not recognize the government. So that's why the talks and the name, the sign and the concept itself, the intra-Afghan negotiation was also this particular language was used in purpose in the Doha agreement. So intra-Afghan negotiations started. And during the talks, one of the elements of the Doha agreement is a withdrawal within a certain time frame. The U.S. announced the withdrawal in April 2021. And after that, we saw gradual collapse of the government and its forces. So there's a lot of things can be said, but maybe for others to, to discuss and to examine why that happened. August 15, Taliban and the U.S. were in my office. We were discussing a, a solution and we were about to reach a solution that night, a day before, two days before. And while we are discussing this, we noticed, we saw in the media that the president uh, left the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taliban said, uh, any idea what to do? And there was some discussions, uh, of course, with the US and with Taliban. And I didn't see that they enter Kabul by force, but because there was an absence of a regime security. And what happened happened, and maybe this is needs more discussions and more look into what exactly happened. What was that like for you personally, negotiating something where it gets overtaken by events? I'm trying to imagine the scene where you have the Taliban in the US in your office and the fast departure of the president was, was unexpected. And so how did you react in that moment? It was very difficult because I experienced something which is also is difficult after a week later. I was one of those who first entered Kabul after the collapse. And there is some conspiracy theory behind this, uh, whether the departure was in purpose to fail the process or something else. We don't know. Time will tell and God knows what happened. But I think the collapse of the regime was the reason Taliban entered Kabul, not because of Doha agreement itself. And you need to make this distinction. Whether Taliban is the right regime or not, uh, this is something after that one to decide. And in terms of the messaging to the Taliban in that period, there was great concern in the West uh, about the treatment of women. What were you saying to the Taliban about that? So we said uh, at least uh, three things. Number one, change the misperception about you. And the misperception about you is your treatment of women and girls' education. Uh, second, this is uh, multi ethnic minorities and inclusivity is, is important 
inclusive system, not necessarily inclusive government. This is up to you to decide, but it's important to have some sort of inclusivity because this is where you gain legitimacy and maybe recognition. And third, engaging with the international community and more importantly on security matters because one of the main pillars of Doha Agreement is not to allow Afghanistan soil to be used by terrorist organizations or terrorist individuals. This is something that we all have concern and uh, you got to show and to act as a responsible government as opposed to uh, insurgent movements. You mentioned that a week after Kabul fell, you entered into the country. Qatar received a lot of praise for its role in evacuating people from the country. Give our listeners a sense of what one day looked like for you there on the ground amidst all of that chaos. Bring us into that moment where you were trying to organize those evacuations. Just uh, seven days or eight days after the collapse, I went to Kabul to assess and to see how to help these innocent people. And I saw a few things that I hope I do not see it again. On the 26th of August, I went to the airport to take the military plane to Doha. I passed that gate, we entered the plane, we took off, and deadly explosion happened just behind us. 13 American Marines got killed, and maybe 200 to 300 people got killed. Had I just uh, waited or delayed this for half an hour or so, we would have been... My God. Uh, and when you landed, who was the first person that you called? Well, I called my mother. Yeah. Let her know that you were okay? Yeah. Yeah. And she doesn't know, and she always kept asking me, don't go to Afghanistan. But uh, I tell her if I return every time. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of the Doha Agreement. There are some who say that it's been superseded by events, but do you think that there's still elements of it that are relevant today? Well, absolutely, 100%. For the simple fact, there is an absence of a global strategy, either by the UN or international community as a whole. There is no strategy towards Afghanistan. So in the light of a lack of a strategy towards Afghanistan, we think this agreement is still valid. There are certain commitments that have not been fulfilled, and we did encourage the parties to go and to revive Doha Agreement. The revitalization of the agreement, I think, is the best way forward. This is the only agreement or document or instrument that Taliban signed, and I think normally or largely Taliban adhere to what they signed. So we'd like to encourage both sides to go back to the Doha Agreement. And we would like to add two other elements. Number one, we would like to encourage the international community to establish an international mechanism to oversight and to monitor the implementation of Doha Agreement. And for maybe some political or cultural considerations, I think Muslim countries should complement these two steps by engaging with Taliban directly on economic and social issues, including girls' educations and women's rights to work. Let's move on from Afghanistan and talk about the release of detainees, because Qatar has played an important behind-the-scenes role. I'm not sure how much of it you can share, but if you can, please do, because it's been incredibly critical in getting detainees freed from certain countries, quiet work between states who have very adversarial relations between them. Can you tell us a little about how such processes work? I just want to uh, state uh, something uh, as a matter of policy. 
either in mediation of conflict resolutions or release of prisoners or hostages or any form of mediation, that we do not do it without the consent of the sovereign state. That's the basic rules and as a matter of policy, and this is what we do. At the request of the parties. Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. Uh, because basically you cannot operate from practical point of view, not only from the view of international law, that you need to seek and secure the consent of the relevant states, but also from practical point of view, you need to, to engage with that state. You know, you cannot maybe sometimes explain because it's still uh, it's secret or confidential. You want to protect the confidentiality of, uh, of such talks, but it's not easy. And it requires a lot of efforts, but it has never been a release from first round. Maybe after three, four, six, seven, ten rounds of talks, you release one or two prisoners or hostage. And do you find that the most personally satisfying side of your mediation work because it's so personal, it's so emotional, it's someone's freedom at stake that you're helping to secure? Maybe I have... uh, personal experience with one of the hostages because actually he published this in his uh, Twitter account. Since he's published it, could you say his name for our listeners? Well, this is the Australian professor who was held hostage by Taliban. He came to visit me in, in my office in Doha and I told him, you see, you see this table? This is where we negotiated your release. So he was uh, quite uh, emotional yeah. uh, when he see a table where till midnight myself with my American colleagues and Taliban's negotiating uh, hostages release and by the way he wasn't he was invited to attend intra-far negotiations ceremony by one of the Taliban detainees with the Afghan government when you look at the next sort of set of states who are playing an active mediation role especially in the Middle East and we look at the Iran-Saudi Arabia deal recently and the role played by China. How do you see their role in peacemaking in the region? Well, in my personal opinion, the talks happened in Baghdad, in Iraq, between the two sides. And I thought that the conclusion of the talks should have been, in my personal opinion, in Iraq. But having this talks to be concluded in Beijing, there might be some political considerations into this. But again, this is a sovereign rights for parties to conflict, where to go, how to conclude, and how to settle their differences. This is something, there's, it's a sovereign rights. You cannot just uh, have any monopoly over it. So that's what I can say. China is an important partner in the region. And for political maybe consideration, China also will advance certain policies and just try to be more relevant in the region and just utilize its good offices to help. You mentioned earlier making a phone call to your mother uh, when you landed to reassure her that you were safe. If she had ever said to you that she she wanted you to stop doing this kind of work because of the risks that it entailed, what would you have done? Well, I had this conversation with my mother and I managed to convince her that what I'm doing is good even from a religious point of view, to stop the bloodshed, to make peace. And this is what we are asked for by God. And saving lives is the best thing that a human being can do. 
So ultimately, she was happy and she prayed for me that I succeed in my mission. So she was convinced. You're clearly a good negotiator. Thank you very much. Well, on that note, we must leave it. Mutlak Al-Qatani, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. So if you have views on anything you've heard, please get in touch via the listener survey and the show notes on our website. Or do drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the producer is Chris Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Noemi Blomer. Big thanks also to Li Puidong for her support. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, from Oslo, this is Adam Cooper saying goodbye and thanks for listening.